Matthews Power Hour. Well, welcome to our Wednesday, the 15th of September edition of the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Alec Hogan with me in our virtual studios, Stuart Lohman, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. Well, we've got lots coming up in the show for you this evening. Magnus Haystick has been lighting up the uh, biznews.com audience. He's definitely in the top half of the top 10 uh, generally every week with his offshore focus and stuff. And I think his data is super detailed and he's very to the point on that. So uh, very um, healthy amongst the business community. But um, with today, the top of the pops is actually Nadia's interview with uh, Dr. Herman Ederling. Obviously, it was taken off YouTube, but we've pulled it into a story on com, and that's been very well accessed. So that's the top story today. It just shows uh, in when I was a young man, there was a, a magazine called Scope. And they used to have little stars on the nipples of the bare-breasted beauties. And if the stars were a little off in the printing process, then Scope would get banned. But, of course, that's what Scope did on purpose because every time it was banned, they had a sold-out issue that week and the next week. So <laughs> maybe there's something to it. Okay, so what else is going on today, Stu? Uh, the story around the Amazon headquarters in Cape Town has uh, also been very well received on the website, Alec. Uh, your interview with Dan Plato, I think, is in the show later today. And there was a piece from yesterday that we published on .com, and that's generated a lot of interest. And then there's, from our partners, the Wall Street Journal, there's a piece on the COVID deaths data out of the UK. I know we spoke about an editorial this morning, um, and the stats coming out of there and just how the UK has progressed on the COVID story and just some data to relate to why. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that's actually been very well received on the website as well. It's a brilliant piece, and it shows uh, the the Wall Street Journal has done the analysis of the data which the Brits have in their National Health Service, and it shows that if you're vaccinated and you're under eighty or actually under eighty-two years old, it's just about certain that you're not going to die of COVID, and those are the realities of it. If you're unvaccinated, all bets are off. The fifty thousand who died in the UK this year. 1.2% uh, were vaccinated, and the average age they had was 82. Clearly, there's some data there that needs to be taken into account with all these draconian laws that are being brought through. Nadia, what are our community watching? Similar themes, Alex. So the video of your interview with uh, Mayor Plato is um, has been uploaded to Vimeo, so people can go there if they want to watch that. And the interview that you did with Victoria Hollingsworth and Johan van Lochrenberg that was on YouTube on Monday is doing really well where they uncover the truth about the corrupt practices that went on at British American Tobacco. And then the Dr. Edling uh, interview is also still running nicely. That's the one that was banned on YouTube, but is on Vimeo. And on podcasting, Stu? And Swissman Foundation, Alec, on the mandatory vaccines, uh, the business, Biz News Power Hour from yesterday evening, and then your interview with Pit Matong on the open letter to South Africans to get vaccinated so we can open the stagnant economy, as he calls it. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart has got the news headlines. The world's biggest number of HIV cases is complicating South Africa's efforts to fight the coronavirus pandemic, raising the risk of more mutated versions emerging and spreading across the globe. Many of the country's 8.2 million HIV-infected people are immunocompromised, and scientists say they can harbor the coronavirus for longer, allowing it to mutate as it reproduces. As the world struggles to stay ahead of rapidly emerging variants, getting South Africa's HIV-infected people vaccinated has become critical. South Africa and a host of other countries could soon be taken off the UK's travel red list, according to The Telegraph and UK Independent. Citing information from COVID analyst Tim White, UK media outlets report that the nation is currently reviewing the red list and may even dismantle the traffic light system in the coming months. In recent weeks, International Relations and Cooperation Minister Naledi Pandor held talks with her UK counterpart to try and get South Africa removed from the list. South Africa's tax base is steadily declining as more of the country's skilled professionals look overseas for greener pastures, says Isaac Smith, chief executive of the Professional Providence Society. 
According to Smith, the loss of these workers will not only impact revenue collection, but also job creation, as many of these individuals develop businesses and generate wealth. Smith's comments align with Treasury data published by Reuters in August, which shows that the COVID-19 crisis could prove to be a tipping point as more skilled people look to leave the country. Data shows that revenue from the three highest brackets will fall by 8%, according to previously unreported Treasury forecasts. Ouch, maybe we should stay on the red list after all. Justin Rowe Roberts, what's been going on in the JSE today? The JSE All Share Index was lower at 64,000. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 34 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 86 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 98 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,797 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is flat at $74.10 a barrel, and Bitcoin is well up, trading at 685,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, Growth Point Properties, which is regarded as a bellwether of SA commercial property market thanks to the size of its portfolio that straddles the retail, office, industrial and other sectors, continued to feel the pinch of the COVID-19 pandemic in the year to end June, though the impact varied across the portfolio. Office vacancies stood at 19.9% in the 12-month period, up from 15.4% a year earlier, as working from home took a firmer grip on the market but it remains to be seen whether the hybrid work model will remain as strong in the post-pandemic world. The shares were slightly lower on the JSC today. Chinese stocks took a beating as the country's economic slowdown and news that a major property developer will miss interest payments added to investor fears that more regulatory crackdowns are in the pipeline. The Hang Seng China Index, which tracks Hong Kong-listed Chinese shares, dropped as much as 1.9%, taking declines to a third straight day. Country Guarding Holdings was the worst performer, as property developers extended losses after Bloomberg reported mainland authorities have told major lenders to China's Evergrande Group not to expect interest payments due next week. And there's more on that coming up in a moment from our partners at the Financial Times of London. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, September 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. U.S. inflation cooled off a bit in August, and consumers are still spending like it's 2019. Meanwhile, China's property market could get dicey, even for the most powerful of investors. There's also this broader context at the moment in terms of Xi Jinping making these sweeping overhauls of China's business and cultural landscape, and property development and real estate could well be caught up in this. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Consumer prices in the U.S. may be leveling off. That's the key takeaway from the most recent Consumer Price Index report. In August, prices were up 5.3% compared to last August. But more importantly, prices were only up 0.3% from those in July. It means the Federal Reserve kind of gets to say, told you so. And U.S. consumers are still doing their part for the economy. They are spending big. In fact, their spending is still outpacing pre-pandemic levels. That's according to bank executives. At J.P. Morgan, debit and credit card spending is 18 to 19 percent higher than in 2019. It seems U.S. shoppers are shrugging off concerns about the Delta variant and are continuing to fuel the economic recovery. The world's largest private equity firm, Blackstone, said it was ending a multi-billion dollar deal to buy a big Chinese property company. The company is called Soho China, and it was going to be the center of Blackstone's property empire in China until regulators in Beijing said they wouldn't approve the deal within the agreed time frame. Here's the FT's Ed White. It was a real surprise. This was a planned $3 billion commercial property deal by one of the world's biggest real estate managers. It's not exactly normal for the likes of Blackstone to push something to this point and then have it uh, rebuffed. And important context here is that Stephen Schwartzman, the co-founder and chief executive of Blackstone, he's been spearheading an expansion of a vast property portfolio in China. Um, This has grown to be across more than 20 cities. It includes a $1.1 billion acquisition earlier this year of a massive urban logistics park close to Guangzhou. And so the Soho deal was going to be the centerpiece uh, of this empire. 
particularly given uh, the company's holdings across very prime real estate in China's top cities in, in, in Shanghai and in Beijing. And this also came after Stephen Schwartzman spent years laying the groundwork for, uh, you know, for this expansion in China. He had been courting the political elite. He had even pledged uh, $100 million to an international education program at one of Beijing's top universities. So certainly a blow after all of that effort. Ed, how much of this is a setback for Blackstone's investments in the region? On the one hand, it is a very big setback given Soho was really going to be a prized acquisition for Blackstone. You go back to June when the deal was announced and Blackstone was saying that it was thrilled with the deal. It reinforced its commitment to investing in China. Now, on the other hand, you have to ask whether this would have actually been such a good moment to be investing in Chinese real estate. You know, as we speak, questions are mounting over the debts and potential liquidity problems at Evergrande. This is China's biggest real estate group, and there are real serious fears of a contagion risk spilling through the economy in China, and particularly in the real estate market, if things go bust with Evergrande. Uh, there's also this broader context at the moment in terms of Xi Jinping, the China's uh, Chinese president, making these sweeping overhauls of China's business and cultural landscape. And while this has so far been far more acutely felt and focused on areas like technology and education, it is quickly snowballing to lots of other areas. And so property development and real estate could well be caught up in this. Now, as Ed just mentioned, Blackstone's decision to abandon that big property deal comes as China's president, Xi Jinping, is engaged in a sweeping overhaul of the country's business landscape. And that includes property. She is on a populist mission to lower the cost of housing, especially since prices shot up during the pandemic. Here's the FT's Sun Yu. The authority believed that uh, rising land prices are one of the main drivers of the real estate bubble. So they're very keen to keep land prices down which is why the central government ordered local authorities to take any measure that's necessary to control land prices. Now, earlier this year, Beijing set new rules for the land auctions. Local governments regularly sell land to property developers, but central government officials told them to limit the number of auctions. The idea being that more land sold at fewer auctions would give a sense of more supply, thereby lowering prices. It didn't work. Some cities suspended auctions. Other auctions saw higher prices. And Beijing's plan to lower prices put local governments in a tight spot. Most Chinese local authorities, uh, they, they rely on land sales revenue to do everything from paying teachers' wage to building roads and bridges to launching uh, poverty elevation programs. And now, uh, given the fact that they won't have so much uh, revenue from selling land, they'll be facing a cash crunch. Plus, these local authorities have already borrowed so much that many of them are sort of stretched to pay off their existing debt, uh, which is why now local authorities are very worried about this. But there is nothing they can do about this, given the fact that President Xi Jinping is is such a powerful leader. And China, uh, these days, China has become much more centralized than it ever was before. That's our China economics correspondent, Sun Yu. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. It's quite interesting. Magnus Haystick, who joins us now, has got two of the top three stories uh, that have been read on Biz News over the last week. Uh, And Magnus, your latest one talks about the lost decade. Now, we've heard about the lost decade of Jacob Zuma ad nauseum. Uh, It doesn't appear as though there's been much uh, good luck in getting onto a new pathway for the country of, of South Africa as a whole. But what lost decade are you focusing your attention on? Yes, hi, Alec. I'm talking about the personal wealth of everybody who reads my columns and reads your publications and websites and stuff. You know, it's the man in the street, whether you're upper middle class or lower wealthy or even upper poor, whatever, everybody has a little wealth. And, you know, the last decade, we all focus on the on the, um, on the the political damage, the damage to the organizations and state enterprises. But 
And and I was shocked when I finalized the study. I thought, let's see what has happened with your money over the last 10 years. And I'm talking about your stock market investments, your pension fund, your your residential property, and of course, cash. That's the typical spread of middle class wealth. Throw that into a pot and actually measure that and then compare it with what's happening elsewhere in the world. So, And it shows that the last 10 years has been a very poor period for South African investors, both in global terms, that's one part of it, and then as far as inflation is concerned, we barely, barely managed to eke out a 1% or a 2% growth in our, our, our equity investments, which is the main driver of our wealth. Our pension funds over the last eight years have not beaten inflation, and that applies to retirement annuities, preservation funds, provident funds. And we see that every day in our practice. People come in and say, I haven't had growth for eight years, and we so we know that. And then we explain to them the impact. But the, the, bot, the long and the short is that not been a great 10 years. Offshore has been fantastic for you, and you've built some real wealth. And, of course, the question is what's going to happen in the next 10 years? And uh, as I say in my article, uh, I don't know, but if the trends in South Africa don't change, we probably will see a repeat um, of that decline in personal wealth. It doesn't mean you're going to lose all your money. It's a relative issue. You're just going to get slightly poorer and poorer and poorer relative to the rest of the world. And with the, with the result that your imported stuff, your, your iPhones, your iPads, your laptops, your overseas travels will become increasingly unaffordable for the man in the street because they, they earn in rands and they have to pay in dollars. And as a percentage of, the, of your earnings, um, what it is that makes life worth living for many people, even a motor car, just becomes more and more uh, out of reach for people. But what what is the conclusion about all of this? Clearly, the best thing to have done 10 years ago would have to have taken all of your money offshore and to have invested it in a in a hard currency. But now that if you haven't done that and you've now – got yourself into a situation where you have a lost decade, but like South Africa had a lost decade of Jacob Zuma. Your your wealth creation has had a lost decade. How do you catch that up? If you assume that the situation is not going to change in South Africa relative to you know, the economic trends in South Africa and, and the relative investments, it will still be my recommendation to consider taking a big chunk of your money offshore and say, let's allocate that to other parts of the world that is not that are not being affected by events in South Africa, and hopefully I can I can I can have some alpha, I can have some above average growth in my portfolio, and that will kick in in five or ten years from now. I mean, I had this discussion last night with a very long-standing old friend of mine, and we actually did. I actually took her money offshore about nine years ago. And she's so utterly thankful today because she's now at retirement age and she can afford to look after her parents, she can retire and travel, and she realizes that as a result of my push. But we can't do that with everybody. Not everybody likes the volatility uh, of the currency, and that is a given. Uh, But I still remain of the view there are fantastic stuff happening elsewhere in the world, and you can start in Japan. Japan has just kicked into life, so have some money in Japan. The U.S. is still outperforming everything, but you've got countries like uh, um, Denmark, Austria, those countries that are doing extremely well. So global still will be my first preference in terms of, of building some kind of global wealth. And then secondly, to answer your question, what do you do with your existing investments? Now is not the time to sit back and just hope your existing structures or your existing fund allocation models will work for you because they haven't. You need to sit down and talk to your advisor and say, how can we get out of this predicament as cheaply and as, 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 as cheaply as possible? I heard an interesting story today about somebody. It's, it's, it was quite an obvious decision that needed to be taken, but they went back to their previous advisor. It wasn't a financial advisor. It was a business advisor. Who then said to them, "No, no, that's uh, they're not telling you the right thing. Stick with what you've got because what you've got is correct." Are you finding much of that as well? So you'll take people through a like from at the business conference. It was it was an irresistible argument. You can see it, 
But then the guys might go back to, to the person who's been advising them and saying, well, you know, it will eventually uh, work out. Do you find much of that with the people that, uh, that you've taken through these presentations? And, and if so, that inertia as a, just as part of the human condition, how does one address it? It's what I'm really trying to get through. Sure, and that, as you well know, you've been in the business a very long time, uh, um, Alec, and you've been to the Buffett conferences, and and you touch on a point where people use starting points to to prove an argument, that, uh, the one that uh, makes them look the best, and then they will focus on that. And so you can you can you can flabbergast people with statistics that we know. Secondly, and it's almost like a collective decision has been taken with the larger asset managers in the country. But they don't talk about the five past years. They don't. They don't go up into webinars and talk about the past five years. They say, "Yes, we know it was a it was a, a meltdown, but you mustn't get out now because you're going to lose out on the next three or five years of growth." So they're playing on that psychological strategy, the fear of losing out, and that seems to me I can almost become mainstream. We know what the future holds, and we're telling you don't do this and don't do that because you will regret it. And a lot of people buy into that, and they might still be right. But they've been saying this for a very, very long time. In fact, in April this year, every second fund manager was bullish and bringing money back to South Africa and underweight offshore equities. Well, the JSE since April to now is down almost 9%, if you take it from the peak, whereas the offshore markets are up about 10%. So already there's a 20% swing in the wrong way. Um, you've seen how badly our market has been doing the last couple of weeks, sell-off after sell-off. And now we've got the news from China that their slowdown is real. And they are our biggest customer of our goods and, 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 and the commodities that we sell to them. So that's a very, very negative sign in my view. It, and, you know, just the, and the final point is, again, what's it all about? Who's this all about? It's about the clients getting the best possible advice that you can give without a vested interest somewhere being protected or not. And that, unfortunately, is very rife in this country, uh, Alec, and I can talk for hours on what I've seen as a journalist and as a financial practitioner. There's some funny stuff going on in the financial services world, but you're talking with very powerful companies. So those trends that have shaped uh, this situation over the past decade, what are the major ones that uh, we need to look at which potentially could change? And I think as uh, was John Maynard Keynes, I, I was reminded or, or reminded by an ex-boss of mine, Richard Rolfe from Finance Week. He dropped me a, a mail this morning and he said, in your newsletter, you, you quoted Winston Churchill as saying, I, when the facts change, I change my mind. But actually it was John Maynard Keynes. That's right, who, yes, who yeah. It. So, I, but but when those facts change, what 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 trends do you need to see reversing for you to change your mind? Well, what I look at every week, one of the first things I look at is the net buying or selling of our stocks and bonds by foreigners. That's published every week, and I wait for those figures. And today it came out again last week: net sales of four billion in the equity market, and also about four billion in in, in the bond market pushing that up to 100 billion sales so far this year. That explains how weak, why our market is weak. I will start there. I look at what the foreigners are doing because they are a big player in our market, and for the last five years they've been selling. So that starts turning around. And I, I can tell you, if it continues for a week or a month or two months, our market will react very, very positively. And I will talk about it if that happens. But I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's the most important indicator. And then you look at the other indicators, the balance of payments, which is fortunately very healthy. But there's no fixed develop, uh, fixed domestic investment happening. You look at the other factors. And, and at the end of the day, you've got a whole list of things, economic positivity or, or consumer. Are they positive or negative? And at some point, you need to follow those signs, and at some point there will be signs. I, I do follow technical analysis to a certain extent, and the markets will tell you there's something happening, but it still hasn't happened. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is mining guru Peter Major, 
Pete, before we get into the nitty gritty of what's happening in the commodity markets, you're in the US. Between you and Shapiro, you two are keeping the travel industry alive in the middle of a pandemic. Tell us more. Where exactly are you and are you there for business or leisure? Yeah, I'm in Kellogg, Idaho, which used to be the world's richest, deepest silver mines, the silver capital of the world. Unfortunately, the Silver Valley Coeur d'Alene's have mimicked what's happened in South Africa. They've closed the majority of their mines. You know, South Africa's closed 80% of its gold mines. We've closed 80% of our silver mines. And we've really missed out the boom here the last 10 years, great commodity prices. So the two existing mines are doing pretty well. Um, but trying to get another mine going here is just about as difficult as South Africa. Um, if it's not the government, it's the EPA. Um, and we can say talent is scarce. You know, here's an area that had mining for 100 years and they've lost all that talent. And yet the rest of the United States has really grown its mining industry. The rest of the world has. So this talent that was here, uh, this institutional knowledge, um, fully integrated mine smelter mill, they're all closed. And it's it's hard getting something going here again. So, yeah, between Dave Shapiro and I and the COVID industry, because when I fly to Canada in two days' time, I got to get another COVID test, which is $250 here. Vaccines are free, but your COVID test costs $250. And then when I fly back from Canada next week, I got another COVID test. And when I get on the plane to South Africa, I got to get another. So there's about $750 in 10 days for COVID tests, no matter how many vaccines you have. Well, Pete, you are doing your bit for the hospitality industry, so good on you. But on to the commodity markets, and you've been warning us about these unsustainable commodity prices for a while now. Iron ore down 40% from its highs. The precious metals basket also down considerably. What was the catalyst for the sharp downturn in the recent weeks? I can't say. You know, I've read different reasons for it. Worry about inflation. Worry about um, the stock market has finally peaked. Uh, worry about there's been excessive spending and inflation's going to come, and that means interest rates are going to go up. What brought it about? I think it's easier to say what brought it about. It was the virtually the lockdown. When COVID first hit the world in March last year, and the, the knee-jerk reaction is, do what China did, lock everything down. We can see the implications of that in South Africa. You can see the implications of that when you come to America. America never has empty shells. America never has a shortage of anything. But boy, you go in places like Walmart, Costco, you know, the big shopping malls, there's big spaces with nothing. And there's a lot of shelf space that actually have half of what they're supposed to. And, and if you try and get equipment, the, the fact that construction materials here in two years a two by four piece of wood went from $1.50 to $5 to $10. It's now back to $6. So it's kind of peaked. We knew lumber prices can't go up sixfold and stay there. But there was this, this choke in the system. And, and I think it applied to, to metals as well. Um, you know, you only had to shut down the big ships or iron ore production only had to fall 20, 30%. And, we know everything is finely balanced. If you just have a choke of 5%, it has implications. So it looks like it's taken the world a year, year and a half to work through those shutdown implications in the system. There, there's still a huge shortage of construction equipment here. We all know um, there's not enough microchips. So the auto industry has to cut back production worldwide because there's not enough microchips coming out of Taiwan and the few other chip factories. Um, is is that now the reason that commodity prices are coming down, that this blockage in the system is working its way through, that the lockdown itself per se has pretty much ended in the majority of the world? It's definitely in the States. I think it's it's 90 percent plus ended. You, you can see on TV, half the people here don't want the vaccine. A quarter don't even believe in the virus yet, even though the hospitals are quite full. And people have kind of adjusted. Whether you believe in the vaccine or not, whether you believe in the virus or not, the one thing everybody agrees in, we just got to get back to work and we're going to get back to work as much as we used to with or without the vaccine, with or without the COVID virus. If we're going to get sick and die, 
everybody here says, then we'll get sick and die, but we're going to carry on. So there, there's, there's not the kind of blockage, nor normal supply demand balance. And, and yeah, those are, were insane prices that people couldn't sustainably pay. You can't keep paying for iron ore. You can't keep paying these insane prices for PGMs. Um, And the fact that you couldn't get microchips, you couldn't build cars, all of a sudden you didn't need the same number of PGMs. So they were unsustainable prices. It was amazing it lasted as long as it did. The question is, how far are they going to fall? Because we know reversion to the mean doesn't indicate it's going to stop at the mean. It usually falls through the mean on the way down. That's my big worry here. And that's what the share prices are telling us. Share prices are telling us they don't know where it's going to stop, but it's going to be below the mean price. I hope that doesn't happen, but the odds are it will. Pete, we've spoken about the discipline within the management teams of the resource counters during this commodity boom. You've said that it's the most discipline that you've seen in your 40, 50 years as a mining analyst. Is this going to provide these companies with enough of a war chest to get through a period of continually declining commodity prices? Great points, Justin. Good points you've raised. Yes, I think it will. And we've got to split those costs into two categories, capital costs and ongoing working costs. And the indications are they have not been able to manage the working costs. And it's actually easier to manage the capital costs, the expense, Expansion costs, the acquisition costs, you know, that's a switch you can pretty much throw. But the working costs are almost out of control. Um, it's almost back like in 07, 08. And, and I guess it's like you've got two addictions, um, candy and pastry. So those are my two addictions. And I know I can't live with both. So I had to give up one. I gave up candy so I can eat all my pastries. I think the mining companies said, we can't control these working costs. We got a shortage of labor. We got a shortage of material. We got fantastic prices. It's more important to keep production going at almost any cost to take advantage of those prices. And that's what the mining companies did. The discipline part was, we're not going to go out there and start expanding. We're not going to spend any capex we don't think is absolutely necessary. And we're going to keep our acquisitions to a minimum. They've done very good on that. I think you're right. That's given them a decent war chest. That's a war chest they haven't had all these previous runs. And so now they can attack the costs because now they have negotiating leverage with labor and they have negotiating leverage with their suppliers. Say, guys, we gave you double digit increases. You're going to give us no increase this year or you're even going to give us a five or 10 percent cut. And boy, that's what the auto manufacturers in America are famous for. They allow costs to go out of control until the economy goes down. And then they call the guys in and say, you're all taking a 35% cut or you have no business. Our minds are never in that position to do it so dramatically, but they will do something like that low level. I think they are in the best position to weather a downturn in commodity prices than they've been in 25 years, certainly since the mid 90s. Pete, lastly, gold still trading around the $1,800 an ounce mark. This mark was broken for the first time since 2011 last year, but the gold miners have been absolutely hammered so far in 2021. Surely they're still making good profits at these spot gold prices. You know, they're not, and they should be, Justin. And and I'm not exaggerating. I think a lot of these execs, let's start with Anglo Gold. That share price has been hammered and and for the most part, deservedly so. But you have to say, what are we paying such a large number of executives such exorbitant salaries and benefits for? I, I mean, shareholders of Anglo Gold must be the most tolerant shareholders of any company on the JSE. And they should be making profits. $1,800 an ounce is good. But the reason they're not making super profits They've let their costs go out of control. And we see Anglo's is, Anglo Gold is out there doing acquisitions too. So Anglo Gold, I think, is doing two things wrong. They've let their costs go out of control. They have no good cost control. They've definitely let their capital expansion, their expenditures on, on new assets. And I think they are the worst people to manage money that I know of is that whole Anglo Gold team 
and I'm sure I'll be sued for this and blackballed, but they have not exhibited any kind of discipline for decades. For 20 years, I can't remember when Anglo Gold went more than a couple of years. Maybe there was two, three years under Kudafani. Um, he did some big, good moves, but he wasn't there long enough and he didn't do big enough moves to change the DNA of Anglo Gold into being a low-cost producer, into good capital management. They are atrocious at capital management, and they're just about as bad at working costs management. I'm Justin Roberts so of Biz News, and you've been listening to Mining Guru, Peter Major. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm joined by Dr. Duncan Carmichael. Dr. Carmichael, Business published your second article on Business.com this week about enforced vaccination. And it was refreshing for me because we don't see many rationally motivated arguments in respect of such a contentious issue. So in your argument, let's just dive right in. In your argument for enforced vaccination, you mentioned the what's become very well-known benefit of milder cases and far fewer deaths. But in your argument against enforced vaccination, you mentioned a recently released study in Israel that found that vaccinated people had a greater risk of needing to be hospitalized. So this seems to sort of counter the benefit, but can you just unpack the findings of this study for me? I can. Nigel, thanks for having me on, on your show. Um, so just, you know, just to say up front and just to reiterate, I'm a clinician. Um, mm-hmm. I see patients every day. That's where I'm coming from. So I'm not a, a scientist, a true scientist. Uh, I'm not a, a statistician and I'm not an ethics professor by, by any means. So, so I'm coming from this from the point of seeing patients every day and talking to people and having people's concerns and, and speaking from that point of view. So, and I hear some people give the one side of the argument, some people give the other side of the argument, and I think both need to be heard. It's important to hear them and not just sit in the echo chamber of one. Um, so essentially, the Israeli study, and which still is in a journal called MedRx, which is a journal, it's like a holding pattern journal. It still needs to be peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. But... They generally only publish them in MedRx if it's like one of interest and, and secondly, likely um, to, to get through the review process. So it still needs to be fact-checked. Um, but essentially in there, they were saying, they were showing that in Israel, where they've had the vaccine rollout for quite a long time, that interestingly, six months down the line, what they're finding is, which is what we'd expect as well, is that the vaccine strength is not perhaps quite as strong as we had hoped, and people are starting to have to now go into hospital having had a vaccine six months ago with slightly more symptoms than we're expecting. If you look at UK um, numbers, people are delighted that if you've had a vaccine, you're tending not to need to go into hospital. But as things progress down the road, perhaps that immune support that the vaccine was giving was not quite as good, and so they're having to go to hospital more. And, and it really is just as we've had with past vaccines that the natural or wild type immunity from an infection, one would expect to be stronger, one would expect it to affect more aspects of our immune system than just a piece of RNA making a piece of protein, which is what a vaccine is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so to have a longer immunity than, say, the vaccine. So that's what that study is about. I think it's the same study because a new study from Israel also had studied 32,000 people and it found that vaccinated people were 27 times more likely to develop symptoms than people with pre-existing immunity from prior infection. So how does this influence your stance on enforced vaccination? So it's making exactly the same point. 
the picture from Israel is, is really just cautioning us that the vaccine is not a panacea. It's not the big thing. It's not the answer. It's, it's, it's part of a solution. It's certainly very useful. It's decreasing hospitalizations. It's decreasing illnesses, decreasing death. But it has its limits. We should be in a healthy state where we have the vaccine. We shouldn't be exhausted and have coughs and colds and things. Um, we need to continue to look after our health after a vaccine. Um, we can't just rely on it and then sort of go, go and rush off. Um, so so we have, and, and I think it's what we've seen with past vaccines, that the natural wild type immunity, one would expect it to be stronger than the vaccine immunity. And that is what this Israeli study that the same mm. you're mentioning um, is, is, is just showing. Nothing massively new, but it's just affirming what we've known from past vaccine experience. Would you advise your patients who have this kind of natural immunity to get vaccinated? Well, uh, yes. Um, it, it, it depends. <laughs> and so I, I'm dividing people up into the over 50-year-olds. That's my group. And the under 50-year-olds. Under 50 and the, the over 50-year-olds, the best thing to do is not get the natural wild type um, infection okay. to get the vaccine because we're more likely to get a nasty infection. We're more likely to fill up the hospital beds. Mm. Once you've had the vaccine, if you were to happen to get the infection and you would probably then get a mild infection, big bonus because that's going to then see us through not for six to nine months, but for two, three, who, know, who, who knows how long, but for a much longer period of time. It doesn't mean that we should sort of rush out and hug people um, who've got the virus just because you've had the vaccine in confidence. <laughs> but but it, it's, it's not a terrible thing if we were to be exposed to the virus a month or more after having the vaccine and we were to develop that um, immunity, in my opinion. Okay. So you say a month or more after you've had the vaccine. Why? You need to give your immune system time to respond. You need to give your immune system time to react to this insult, to this piece of protein, develop not just antibody response, but also the cellular response, the white cell response. Mm -hmm. And that can take a few weeks to have a full effect. You also mentioned a Wisconsin study. Can you just unpack those findings for me? In the Wisconsin study, in my reading of it, and, and, and we, we'll, we'll see further examinations of it, um, as it goes on. But it was, it, I think the background is, is that a lot of people who've had their vaccine have been looking at people who haven't been vaccinated. And I said, well, you're the problem. You're the people who are spreading this illness around. And really what this is saying, the Wisconsin study is saying, is that as a vaccinated person, if I pick up the virus, I can still have a high viral load. I can still pass it on. And we still need to know a lot more about it. Now, other studies have said that I'll have a viral load, but it might be less than someone who has, has not had, had the vaccine. Um, but in certain circumstances, you know, you could have quite a high viral load. There is the possibility that I could, having had the vaccine, pick up the virus, not have many symptoms, have a reasonably high viral load, in theory, and not know that I'm passing it on. So as a vaccinated person, and I've seen this with quite a few patients, I need to be mindful that if I've got a bit of a scratchy throat, it could be COVID, and I should really go for it. And the problem is, is that the PCR tests are, are a bit of a hassle. You've got to go along, you've got to make a booking, and people don't, it's just a scratchy throat, I don't want to do it. But we need to be mindful, if we have a scratchy throat, we need to stay away from people who we could pass this on to. It could still be COVID, even though it doesn't feel mm. like COVID. We don't have the loss of smell and all the classic symptoms. So there's a debate between an individual's rights and what's best for society. And that essentially this is what we're weighing up when considering mandatory or enforced vaccination. You mentioned that it takes or it would take a very special circumstance to have an individual have to forego their right not to be vaccinated. Do you think that COVID-19 with the very high recovery rate warrants such a circumstance? It's interesting, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's, such, it's such an important topic. I Honestly, I, I don't think I'm the most qualified person to make the judgment on this. I'll certainly give my opinion on it. But there are far cleverer people than me who, who would have a, a wider opinion on it. Um, but I do think we need to be mindful that it's not... So it's very difficult for us to swallow the fact that I do not have the right to do whatever I want with my life. Hmm. And then we think about it. Yes, you can't shoot someone. You can't run down the street naked, etc. Um, there are certain things that, that we can't do. But when it comes to medical things, it becomes a lot more personal. And there have been many, many instances in the past where um, people have been coerced and forced and, and governments, and then after the Second World War with the Nuremberg Code and then the Helsinki Declaration some years later, um, that this... The, the, the medical rights, what we put inside our body, should be a whole lot more enshrined. Mm-hmm. It's not law, it's not legislation that we can't, but a lot of countries uphold that. And it's upheld because as a clinician, we work on trust. When someone comes in to see me, he or she trusts that what I'm going to say is for their best interest. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we start coercing and forcing, then we lose some of that trust. And it's not just that you've got to buckle up, you're not allowed to drink alcohol. There's a lot more at stake than that. And it's, it's a very difficult question. You know, it, it, the good of the herd. So if more, as Adrian Gore was saying in his article for why Discovery is enforcing their employees, that we've had so many hospitalizations that we have a responsibility or to have a vaccine because it's proving to be quite useful so we can reduce the burden on the state, we can reduce those hospitalizations. But from a clinician's point of view, it's so much more complicated than that because we do lose a lot of trust when we pull that trigger. And what do you think the repercussions could be of this erosion of the public's trust in the medical fraternity? We've seen it. I mean, I see it, I see it every day. Everyone, it just people hear what they hear, they're in that bubble, whether it's this side or that side. Mm. And, you know, one of the nice things about this news is that you allow discussion from both sides and you encourage them. You need that more and more. You know, South Africa, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We have a, a long history of open discussion, mm. of being able to give an opinion. And I think it's so important. Um, and that's what we lose. We, we lose the discussion and we lose people being feeling free to express their fears. It doesn't matter how ridiculous the fear is. If, if we can't, that's why psychologists helps us to be so at ease, so we can express our fears, they can actually come out. It's very important. As soon as we start suppressing things and enforcing things, um, all of that goes underground. So just to close off with, what I found particularly interesting is that in your article, you didn't decidedly advocate either for or against enforced vaccination. Am I reading this correctly, or do you have a stance I do have a stance. I mean, I'm against enforced vaccination. There's got to be pretty good reason. And I don't think we have the reasons at the moment. I don't think they're in place. And I think that's what, especially the middle part of the article and, and the studies that have come out um, show, is that as a vaccinated person, I can still share viruses. My vaccine that I get is not long-lasting. There's really quite strong limits on it. We're not going to get herd immunity. So the, the strongest argument for enforced vaccination is to take pressure off the state, pressure off hospitals. Hmm. And I think that's a, a very hard sell. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Mayor Dan Plato joins us now, the mayor of Cape Town. Uh, I was having a look through your Wikipedia uh, page, Dan, and it shows that You've had two stints as mayor of Cape Town. First of all, succeeding Helen Zilla, 2009, and then coming back in 2018 to succeed Patricia DeLille. What's next? Last time round, you went into the Western Cape Parliament. Are you going to be doing that when you leave the office? Not, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity, but not sure as yet. Still time to think about that, about the next chapter in my life, the next chapter in my career. Yeah, that is still under discussion. H- how old are you? 
60, and I feel 15 years younger than that. <laughs> 60 is the new 40, as I well know. But it's interesting that your political party, the Democratic Alliance, has nominated a very young man to take over from you, Gordon Hill Lewis. Do you think there's going to be much changes to the, the whole administration uh, when he steps into your office? Not sure. Look, it's it's a case of grooming the youngsters for higher office. Um, the six-year-olds and, and, and that sort of thing won't be there within the next five to ten years. And we need to groom the youngsters of how best to govern, to learn from us. And uh, that is why uh, Jordan is walking next to me to many, many meetings, many engagements, and also for me to make sure there's a proper handover of what he must do, what he must not do. Oh, yes, because he's brand new in government. He, he never governed before he was never part of a governing structure and that sort of thing always in opposition in national parliament but to, to govern a provincial like we are and the city of Cape Town is definitely a different piece of cake and uh, we cannot allow any mistakes and that is why we're making uh, use of a grooming kind of a period as well to make sure um, he knows exactly what's at stake when he entered the corridors of the city of Cape Town. Well, that's going to make everybody in Cape Town happy that you do have proper succession planning. But did he come along to the meetings with Amazon? Because that's the big story of the moment, the Africa HQ of Amazon. No, definitely not. Um, look, uh, Amazon must not be, be a big story because uh, you must remember the Lisbeck Park uh, Trust have a huge say within what happened at uh, Twin River Park at the moment. And at the end of the day, Amazon, is, as far as I'm, I understand, is only an anchor tenant. Uh, you could have had Pick Pay or Woolworths or else, uh, any other big business as an anchor tenant. It's exactly what's happening there. So the focus must not entirely be on Amazon. But at the end of the day, we are, I'm very happy and pleased with Amazon because it's one of America's biggest, uh, one of the three biggest companies in America currently. And everybody would love to have Amazon right in their backyard. Especially with their continental headquarters. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because when Amazon was looking to have a second headquarters in the United States, it ran a beauty parade. It had cities from all over America who are offering incredible incentives to Amazon to come to their cities. In Cape Town's case, did you not have to do that? Definitely not. Look, um, the, 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 the fact of the matter is looking at what Amazon already bring to Cape Town and what they are offering Cape Town and looking at the current situa- economical situation of South Africa at large, um, just the fact that the company of the magnitude of Amazon putting up base in Cape Town says a lot. Uh, it is actually assisting our economy to lift its head. Reading the newspapers this morning and talking to Deputy Mayor Ian Nielsen, looking at uh, with with the situation be beginning to normalize economically, and people that look looking for space for their conferences and that sort of to see how the International Convention Center in Cape Town is picking up its head, and for the next two years already fully booked to a large extent with the economical monetary investment of about 600 billion rand into Cape Town's economy over the next three years. That is what Cape Town needs right now. And that is why I'm so chuffed about the Amazon announcement, the Africa head office right in our backyard, and also with the opportunities Amazon bring and offer Cape Town and South Africa and the Western Cape already. No one can want to say no to that. Uh, Dan, many of the haves from upcountry, have been moving to the Cape. Certainly, when you talk to estate agents up here where I live in Johannesburg, they will tell you that the number of houses on the market are from people who are relocating to Cape Town. Now, when we spoke with your deputy executive mayor, he explained that the rates and taxes, for instance, in Cape Town are now far better than the other metropoles over the, uh, in the country because of good management and so on. How are you dealing, though, with this, what must be a massive influx of semigration into the city and indeed its surrounds? Look, we don't find it from the haves alone flocking to Cape Town, even the have-nots. They, they can see who is governing the best. And uh, 
where there's stability in governance at large. Um, um, looking at what's happening in the rest of the country and people made up their mind. Uh, look, even the ordinary disadvantaged poverty-stricken person wants stability. Um, they want safety for their children and their families. They want good education. They want a good, viable, working uh, health system. Um, and, 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 and all the, that a government can provide to people. And, um, and at the end of the day, that is what Cape Town is offering, the haves and the have-nots. And that is, again, a beautiful way of saying bringing those two centers, bringing them together, and to say Cape Town is a safe haven for whoever that want to come and work and operate in Cape Town. You, you must realize one thing. During the Phoenix, Gauteng, Mayhem, we manage to say to our people, we cannot want to allow that drama to happen in Cape Town. Um, the Cape Town community, through our neighborhood watches and our walking buses, protected the shopping centers for days in a row. And, 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 and at the end of the day, we succeeded in, 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 in making sure that Cape Town stays unsketched with regard to all the drama and so on. And, and, and that also sent out a clear signal that that is how Cape Town wants to do its business. Um, yes, we have the odd marches, the odd tire burning here and there, but uh, at the end of the day, nothing we can't control, con uh, uh, control and contain. Uh, we have done that very, very nicely, but at the end of the day, uh, I am very, very sure that, that many people uh, in the rest of the country see Cape Town as, as the place to go and put up camp. And, and that's indeed the case. But how are you managing it from a governance perspective? How are you preparing or managing to service this massive influx of people who are coming to your part of the world? You, you, you are so right. It's difficult. Um, um, because so many disadvantaged people want, uh, first world services. We need to provide the necessary services to all the people and, uh, it's pressure on the taxpayers, uh, pressure on those paying the property rates and that sort of thing. And, um, we, we had one or two picketings for people saying lower the electricity tariffs, lower the, the property rates tariffs and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm very, very pleased with regard to how the public of Cape Town are dealing with us, with us. Uh, I think uh, the ordinary Cape Townian paying all those charges is of the opinion that is also their contribution uh, to the city of Cape Town and their contribution uh, to uplift people and to give people back dignity that never had dignity uh, uh, for so, so long, uh, looking at the history of the country. Yes, but uh, uh, my appeal to national government is to see what is happening and with, with grants and things like that. Lots of our grants were taken away. Maybe Deputy Mayor made reference to that as well. But I think with, with, with pe more people getting the jab, vaccinated and that sort of thing, our economy be beginning to pick up and so for national government uh, to up our, our, the grants they need to provide to the city of Kitten so that we can uh, provide the much-needed services to the public out there. Too many informal areas in Cape Town, I admit that very, very clearly. We need to build more houses. Um, we need to upgrade our, our, our underground, in, ailing uh, underground infrastructure. That is a major problem. Uh, a, a lot of work to do, also for the incoming government in, in the city of Cape Town. But uh, nothing we can't handle. So for those who are semigrating to the Cape from up north, they can expect some different approach. The approach that you've, you've spoken about with Amazon, with the First Nation, the approach with a more integrated society, an approach of, yes, we will pay our rates and taxes, but it is an investment in the social stability of the city. Is that a fair comment? No, definitely, I think so. I think it's a case of pulling together. It's a case of making South Africa work. It's a case of making the Western Cape and Cape Town to work. I think the ordinary citizen, uh, the rich, the poor, everybody accept that. And that is why uh, we're doing our business in this in this manner. That is why you see lesser marches happen, taking place in Cape Town, you, lesser riotings taking place in Cape Town. It's, it's actually as a result of the manner in which we treat our public and we do our business. And 
and uh, people need to take a, a leaf out of that. Uh, our approach with regard to any problem, uh, we appreciate criticism, we appreciate uh, people not happy with whatever, but at the end of the day, we face up to the public, we explain why we do things in a, in a specific manner, and, um, and, and uh, in continued engagement with the public is, is of the utmost importance. Never run away from the public, face up to them, and the public is happy with norm, uh, normally they are very happy with the explanation they receive. Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we'll be back again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.